Well, we continue our look at the book of Nehemiah today, and I'm calling this Living by the Book. I want to start with a simple question that maybe you haven't thought about for a while, but what is the Bible? What is the Bible? Uh, you know, in this culture, uh, the Bible has means different things to different people, and even among believers, familiarity can sometimes cause us to sort of lose our sense of the significance of what it is we hold in our hands, not to mention the fact that a technology has kind of snuck in there so that what we used to be able to define as a hopefully well-worn, leather-bound book of pages that we, you know, have been in the family for a while maybe or that you open up on your lap and read uh, looks a little bit different today. As I travel and speak at conferences, more and more often, the vast majority, in fact, of people don't have a physical Bible in their hand. They are using some type of mobile device, which reminded me of this cartoon where the little fellow sitting on his dad's lap says, uh, I like your Bible, Dad, but how do you turn it on, right? I mean, that's really the, the world that we're living in uh, uh, today. Uh, but what is the Bible exactly? Uh, when's the last time you, you thought about that? Um, what, what do we hold in our hands when we, when we look at the Bible? Well, we can start with some basics. We know that it is a book written by 40 different human authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And these human authors were used by God to record precisely what he wanted us to know over a span of about 1,500 years. We know it started with Moses, who wrote the first five books of the Bible during the wilderness wanderings, so 1446 B.C. to 1406 B.C., and it went uh, lasted for about 1,500 years till the last uh, writer of the New Testament, the Apostle John, wrote the book of Revelation in 95-96 A.D. By the way, don't let anybody tell you Revelation was dated earlier. Uh, that's a more of a liberal, critical view of Scripture. The Bible is pretty clear when, when it was written. The evidence is overwhelming. So you got 1446 B.C. to 95-96 A.D., again, about 1,500 years. The Bible was not written in English. I hope that doesn't come as a shock to you. Uh, the Bible was written originally in three languages. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, except for a few portions during the Babylonian exile when Aramaic was the language of God's people, and so some of it was written in Aramaic. And then, of course, the entire New Testament, written during the Greco-Roman Empire, was written in Greek. But thankfully, we have translations today that allow us to read it in our own language. But I wonder if we really appreciate the significance of this book where 3,800 times the Bible says, Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. There's a reason we call it the Word of God. The Bible itself calls it the Word of God. It is God's self-revelation to mankind. It is God's way of saying, Here I am, look at me. Everything we need for life and godliness is contained within this book. Uh, it, it really is the, the Word of God. Uh, when we read the Bible, it's doing something to us. It's changing our lives. It's unlike any other book on the planet. Now, I can't help but think uh, that the church in our generation has really tossed away our most precious commodity. Sadly, most churches today don't value the Word of God. They don't preach from the Word of God. In essence, they are uh, discarding our core connection with the Creator. I mean, Jesus no longer walks the earth in bodily form. He will someday, make no mistake, He will come back. 
But right now, he's left us with the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit and the inspired, living, written word of God as his testimony to tell us how to navigate this life. And so it's really sad to see how many churches today have carelessly uh, and without regard for the dire consequences just put the Bible on a shelf uh, in favor of, you know, more relevant or catchy types of, of sermons. And, you know, almost wherever you turn, the Bible is, is passe. I, I, I travel a lot, as you know, and I, I remember being at a, a conference one time where a lady came up to me at the booth after I had spoken, and she was telling me about a, a, a search for a church, and she was differentiating uh, one church, her church, from another one. And she said, the reason I didn't go to that other church or I decided against it is because it was, this is her words, it was too Bible-centered, she said. So after I slapped her, I said, uh, I said, well, that's the one you should have gone to. What, what do you, I don't understand. How can I, that, you know, that's like, how, how can you be too Bible-centered, right? But in her mind, it was, yeah, they're just they're too much into the Bible. We want something more practical, as if the Bible is not practical. And I was at an apologetics conference one time, uh, one of several speakers at this conference, and I was speaking about, uh, you know, evangelism training and how to use the Word of God in evangelism because it's the word of God that's the power of God to salvation the gospel faith comes by hearing hearing by the word of God and a guy took issue with some of the things that I said about using the word of God and he came up to me at the booth and he said you know I, he was just insistent that the Bible his words is not the best tool for evangelism and uh, so I, I chose to punch him I slapped the gal I punched him no, but I, I said, what do you mean the Bible is not, a, the Bible is evangelism. That's, that's the word of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. But again, the, the, the Satan has convinced the world today, even many within Christianity, that the Bible is passe. But, you know, we, we see Christian books beginning to outsell the good old-fashioned Bible at an alarming rate. And by the way, when the Bible is sold, these days, it's been so paraphrased and dumbed down that you can hardly even recognize what the original text said. Um, I think one of the reasons that Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.13 that evil men and imposters are going to get worse and worse is because he understood, and certainly God knew, what he had said in Proverbs 29.18, which is this, where there is no revelation, the people cast off restraint. That word revelation in Hebrew literally refers to prophetic utterance, meaning the Word of God. At the time Proverbs was written or collected, a thousand years or so before Christ, they had the Old Testament law, they had some of the prophets, but uh, they didn't have the entire Bible. But they had God speaking through prophecies, through prophetic ministries, and through the angel of the Lord and other means. He even spoke through a donkey one time and handwriting on a wall one time. And what the writer here is saying is that without the Word of God, people are going to cast off restraint because the Word of God is a, is a restraining influence on people. And then he contrasts it, but happy or blessed is the one who keeps the law, the Word of God. So the more we cast off the Word of God and set it on the shelf, the crazier things are going to get. And that's exactly what we see happening today. We need to reacquaint ourselves with the Bible. And that's exactly what the children of Israel needed to do in Nehemiah's day. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Nehemiah chapter 8 uh, as we continue this, uh, this survey. 
In this postmodern age where uh, people have abandoned truth as a philosophical concept, uh, we need to realize that truth is real. I have a whole chapter in the new book that uh, is out now, Spirit of the False Prophet, that talks about Yuval Noah Harari and what he has famously said about truth. And, and I dug really deep, found an FAQ page on his website, and he's just uh, hostile to the concept of truth. And he represents, he's a leading voice today of most academics and scientists and, you know, uh, people like that in our, in our day. But uh, we, that philosophical concept is not gone. The Bible says we can know the certainty of the words of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, it's second nature today for people to turn truth on and off like a light switch in order to meet their needs or justify their behavior or justify their thoughts. Uh, people don't deny the existence of personal truth. They just deny the reality of truth with a capital T that's absolute for everyone at all times. That's the way most people view truth. They have some identifiable system that they live by, but they they're happy to pause it at will as needed whenever it's convenient for them to do so. If the world is going to become reconnected to truth, uh, then the church needs to re-engage itself in reading and studying the source of truth, God's Word, the Bible. It's the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. And again, that's exactly the situation the people faced in Nehemiah's day. You know, as we talked about last time, last couple of times, the wall had been repaired. Well, let's step back. Since I was gone last week, let's kind of give a quick summary of, of, the, of the context of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah, written in 445 B.C., he was God's man of the hour, called by God to help rebuild the walls around the city as the children of Israel had begun returning after the exile. This was the third return after Zerubbabel and Ezra's uh, returns. And uh, when Nehemiah heard from his uh, kinsmen there in Jerusalem that the walls were dilapidated, the city was defenseless, he was broken, he wept, he prayed, and God gave him favor in, in the eyes of the king, and he was allowed uh, by King Artaxerxes to go back and oversee this building project. So we've been studying that, and we saw how they completed the walls, and then last time we, we talked about how they hung the gates. That was kind of the last piece of the puzzle, because they had the walls built, but they were still vulnerable because the gates were open, but they have now hung the gates. So the city was, the, the, was secure, the walls were rebuilt, the building project was done. So the question is, why did Nehemiah stick around? And why do we have so many more chapters, six more chapters in the book of Nehemiah? Because it was never about a building project. It was about helping the people return to the Lord. After all of these decades in exile, they had really departed from the Lord. They had not been reading the Word of God. They had not been practicing the, the sacrifices and the things that the law called for them to do. They had departed from the Lord. They'd, they'd been just scrambling at like a, a sheep without a shepherd. Now that their city has been rebuilt and the temple has been rebuilt and they can begin to be safe within their own walls, it was time to return to God. That, the building project was a means to an end, and Nehemiah understood that. Returning to God means returning to His law. They need to have a, a re-engagement with the Word of God, which was the law in their day. Uh, the Old Testament, the first five books of the Bible. The Word of God had always been central to the, in the lives of the Israelites. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, the Shema as it's called. 
And we read, these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. Watch this. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That phrase, frontlet, uh, it, it basically was a figure of speech that God was using through Moses as the Spirit led Moses to write these words from God that meant the Word of God should be front and center. It should be take center stage in your life. It should be right in front of you, in essence. Well, what happened is soon after their return from Babylon, the people of Israel began to interpret this literally. And, and so they had portions of the law, specifically from Deuteronomy 6 here, written out on little uh, uh, parchment, and they, they, had, they, they had these put inside these black leather cubes. They were called phylacteries. So here's a little diagram. They would, when they would do their morning prayers, they would have these strapped to their forehead, the frontlets, and on their arms. And again, they took it literally. It was a reminder uh, to trust in God and to return to God, and, and they took it literally. Many Jews still do that today. You may go to a, a Jewish house and you may see a little box on their doorpost as you enter it. I have a good friend who's a great man of God, has a great ministry, and, and I was at his house, been at his house a few times up in Washington State, but most recently I was in his office and I noticed he had one over the doorpost going into his office. And that's just a symbolic way of making the Bible central. There's nothing intrinsically unique about it. And as I said, the children of Israel sort of extended the metaphor to make it into these phylacteries. But the point is, the Word of God was supposed to be central in their lives, and it's supposed to be central in the lives of God's people today. By the time Nehemiah came along and the people that returned to the land, they had lost the centrality of God's Word. And so you get to chapter 8, and 13 times in this, in this short chapter, Nehemiah refers to the book, the Bible. Six times it's called the law, three times it's called the book of the law, twice just book, and twice using a pronoun. And so my takeaway from this is three ways to make God's Word central in your life. Nehemiah 8, I told the earlier service, it's my favorite chapter in the book of Nehemiah. In fact, I've come back to it again and again through the years, even when I'm not teaching through Nehemiah, as a cross-reference or a text for some other presentation that I'm giving. And, and, and this chapter is just, it's just so amazing and encouraging to me about uh, making the Word of God central in your life. So I want to read just the first eight verses of this chapter, and then we'll come back to some other verses at the end of the chapter in uh, in this message. But it begins, when the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in their cities. So again, the building project's done, right? Uh, uh, you know, Paul's in the building business. When you finish a building project, do you like stick around and just for fun and hang around, or do you move on to the next building project? Yeah, that's right. So why did they stick around here? Because it wasn't about the physical plant. It was about the the means to an end, which is to provide a place where the people of God could come together and do what the Word of God told them to do, right? So here we are, verse 1, Now all the people gathered together as one man in the open square that was in front of the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. 
I'm going to talk about in a little bit how this was part of a feast that they held every seven years. They were supposed to come together for the public reading of the Word of God. Of course, they hadn't been doing it during the exile. So this was, you know, a, a, a prescribed occasion, but it had special meaning as they were returning to God. So they call uh, Ezra. He brings the book. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men and women and all who could hear with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. Then he read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday before the men and the women and those who could understand. Let me just interject here. This, of course, is a description of what was going on in this historical context. It's not something that's prescribed. But it is a, a good example that it's okay at times to, to have the really young children who are not intellectually capable of even understanding words. I mean, not that their minds can't be influenced by you know, hearing the Word of God and so forth as you read it to them. But the point is, this occasion was for people who could hear and understand. And so when churches today, some you know, 2,400 years later... Uh, have nurseries for the real young children and things. There's nothing wrong with that. I know a lot of people just think you should never ever have a children for you know place to change diapers or whatever. They should always be together at all times. And that's I, I understand the concept behind that and it's commendable. But we have biblical evidence that God differentiates between those who can hear and understand and those who can't, which also gets into the grace of God, which is why those who are incapable of intellectually understanding the gospel are covered by God's grace. We've talked about that before. But uh, it says the ears, verse 3, of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So Ezra the scribe stood on a platform of wood that had been made for, the, for that purpose. So a lot of practical application here. This is one of the earliest references we have anywhere in literature to a pulpit, to just what you see here and what has been used in churches all across the world uh, for centuries, a, pl a place for people to stand on a platform so they could preach and teach Obviously, in that day, they didn't have technology, they didn't have microphones, so it was important to have a raised platform where they could uh, project. Um, and then beside him at his right hand stood all of these people. We won't read all of their names, but they're the different assistants and priests. Uh, in a moment, we're going to find out how they went out. There were so many people that, you know, while Ezra was reading, others went out to the far reaches and got smaller groups together, and they read uh, and taught the Word of God as well. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. Another interesting practice that has kind of caught on throughout church history. In a lot of churches, when they read the text, when the preacher reads the text, people will stand. In fact, I grew up in a church that would say, in honor of the reading of God's word, let's stand together. Well, that comes from this practice. But again, it's not commanding us to do that. That's just what they did. So it's not something you have to do every time the Bible is read, you have to stand up. But it's certainly a, 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 a common practice. Verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and then all the people answered, Amen, Amen. So obviously this was the first Baptist church in history. <laughs> amen, Amen. By the way, you could stand to say Amen a little more often. Amen. Thank you. Right on cue. Uh, uh, and it says, uh, all the people answered, amen, amen, while lifting up their hands. So evidently it was a charismatic Baptist church. But uh, no, nothing wrong with raising your hands. The New Testament talks about that. But this was, this was a key moment. Think about the moment here. For the first time in a long, long, long time, the people of God were coming together on the occasion of this feast, gathered as an assembly, and proclaiming the word of God. So of course it was encouraging to them. They bowed their heads and they worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And all these assistants 
uh, were there. And then verse 8, so they read distinctly from the book in the law of God. And this is the key. We're going to come back to this verse. And they gave the sense and helped the people to understand the reading. This is quintessential expository teaching. You read the Word of God, and then you explain what the Word of God means. Now, a lot of what passes for preaching today, you've got different categories. As I've mentioned, you've got whole swaths of churches that have just abandoned the Bible altogether. I mean, they read readings from books of prayer and the liturgy. And they don't even really read the Bible, and they're not ashamed to admit it. But then you've got people that at least give lip service, churches that give lip service to the value, to the value of the Word of God. But they don't handle it correctly. We're going to talk about that in a second. But, um, you know, they, they, they may read a text, but then they run as fast as they can away from that text in their message. It's the kind of sermons that, as I've said before, if the text had a cold, the sermon would never catch it. I mean, there's no connection at all, right? So, but what they're doing here is they're reading the Bible, and then they're explaining the meaning of those words to these Jews, many of whom had grown up in exile. So they didn't have any historical context. So we're going to come back to that. But three ways to make God's Word central in your life that we see from this passage in Nehemiah. The first is listen to it. Listen to the Word of God. As you sit here this morning, where is the hunger for God's Word in your life? Has it grown cold? Or do you still eagerly, energetically, enthusiastically long to, to hear the Word of God. Most churches in our culture have become glorified social clubs, you know. People come more for, for the donuts or the fellowship uh, than they do the, the teaching of the Word of God. But if we go back to verse 1, the, 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 the fact that Nehemiah did not move back, as I said, to Susa, where he was from, when the walls were built, the city was secure, shows that that wasn't his primary concern. His primary concern was to bring the Word of God back to the people. That was the whole point. He wanted to see God's plan fulfilled and bring the centrality of the Word of God back so they could reinstitute all of God's Word and His, his law. Uh, so Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. The as I mentioned, the Mosaic Law prescribed that once every seven years, the people of Israel were to assemble and listen to the reading of the law. This was the Feast of Booths, or sometimes called the, the Feast of Tabernacles. Some English translations of the Bible call it the Feast of Shelters. Uh, but it goes back to the wilderness wanderings when they would build little tents out of branches and stuff in the wilderness. Uh, and it symbolized God's protection, His, his watch care, it looked forward to the ultimate uh, building of the temple someday. But it was an opportunity at this occasion, uh, every seven years, to remember God's protection, to give Him glory. And it was a, it was a celebratory uh, time. But this is what they did once every seven years. They brought the people together. You know, we have a, a history in the church, at least in America, going back to the turn of the 20th century, called the Bible Conference Movement, where... Uh, people would get together, started with the Niagara Bible Conferences, and it gave rise to the Bible College movement in the early 1900s, and then a lot of seminaries grew out of that, like Moody and Dallas Seminary. But I love what Ward Wiersbe said about this assembly. You know, why did, why did Nehemiah call Ezra there? He said, well, this is, 
This explains why Nehemiah called for a Bible conference and invited Ezra the scribe to be the teacher. That's a good mental picture of what was going on here. It's like, hey, everything's going to shut down. We're going to have this Bible conference. I speak at Bible conferences all across the country. I have for many, many years, 25 years. Uh, different apologetics conferences, prophecy conferences, uh, evangelism training conferences, different types of homeschooling conferences, general Bible conferences. Uh, but in, back in the day, you know, you would have a week-long Bible conference. I can remember growing up in that culture where we bring in guest Bible lectures, and for that week, if I had basketball practice that night at school or I had some other, it, we didn't go. We were at church every night of the week for the Bible conference to hear this uh, speaker. And that's kind of what we're doing here. It's a seven-day-long festival centered on the proclamation and teaching of the Word of God. Verse 3, we read, it says, He read from it in the open square that was in front of the water gate from morning until midday. I mean, a lot of people today can't listen longer than 22 minutes, which is the average length of a sitcom if you take out the commercials, right? Uh, but notice the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. They were hungry for it. They were listening to it. Go on down in verse 18 again for seven days. Day by day, he read from the book of the law of God. This is talking about Ezra. We see a similar hunger for the word of God in the early days of the church. Remember in the days of Peter and John, we read in Acts chapter 5, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And the Lord continued to add to their number and add to their number and add to their number as the church grew. It was central. In Acts chapter 2, we see a description of the early church and front and center, one of the purposes of the local assembly was to teach doctrine. Today, doctrine's a bad word. Uh, I, in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong, I critique a guy named Leonard Sweet who says, oh, doctrine is divisive. We don't ever want to teach doctrine. You know, that's, that just draws too many lines of distinction. This is straight out of the Word of God. You see it again and again. Paul talks about it in his pastoral epistles. We've got to teach doctrine. That word doctrine, by the way, in Greek is didache. I talked about that at Prophecy Night a couple of weeks ago. Uh, it just means teaching. Um, and it was so foundational that the early church created a document in the first century that could be passed around that had the apostles' explanatory you know, meaning of the text of what they had written, right? So uh, in Acts chapter 13, Paul's first missionary journey, the whole city came together, what? To hear the word of God. And I like this passage at the end of Genesis about Joseph. You know, Genesis has 50 chapters at the very end, the last whole part of Genesis is about the historical narrative relating to Joseph uh, and uh, one of Jacob's sons. And Joseph, we read he's in this passage, he dies and it says, Joseph dwelt in Egypt, he and his father's household, and Joseph lived 110 years. But notice this, Joseph saw Ephraim's children, that was his son, to the third generation, the children of Machir, which was Manasseh, Ephraim's brother's son, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. Now picture that. It's, a, it's, it's kind of a heartwarming picture. Here's this great-great-grandfather on his deathbed still gathering the youngsters around him on his lap. And what do you think he's talking about? The Word of God, the promises of God, the covenants of God. When's the last time you gathered your family together and talked about the Word of God? That's essentially what they were doing at this Bible conference in Nehemiah's day. They were listening to the Word of God. Are you listening to the Word of God in your personal life? Do you read it every day? Do you hunger for it? Do you listen to it on podcasts? Are you 
saturating yourself with the Word of God? What about in your family's life? Is the Word of God central in your family's life? Do you have it on posters in the household and artwork? And do you have a little verse of a, verse of a day, calendars, that kind of thing? Is it central? What about in your church's life? You better believe it's central at Plum Creek Chapel. And if it ever ceases to be central, fire me. <laughs> uh, because that's, that's not what the purpose of the local church is. Uh, number two, not only listen to it, but learn from it. Learn from it. The value, listen carefully, the value of the Word of God to change your life and make a difference in your life is only as good as your ability to handle it correctly. The value of the Word of God to change your life is only as good as your ability to handle it correctly. In other words, if you misuse and abuse the Word of God, it's actually counterproductive, right? I have a chapter in the new book on Romans 13. I've talked about it in conferences and podcasts before, but I've never actually written it down. So in the new book, I talked about the use and mis the misuse and abuse of Romans uh, 13. So we can only learn from it if we understand what it means. And as we read, I told you we were going to come back to verse 8 here, they read distinctly from the book and helped them understand the reading. Uh, this was quintessential expository teaching. Here's what the Word says. Now here's what it means. What do you do with this information, right? In Charles Swindoll's commentary on the book of Nehemiah, he, he's such a wordsmith. He, he has such a way with words, and I love what he said here. He said, quote, Today, the nutritional value of what is passed off as biblical teaching is often nothing more than gruel. <laughs> Flippant preparation of God's Word is causing many to slowly starve on the pablum of watery philosophies and thin, tasteless principles. For the full nutritional value of God's Word to be enjoyed, it must be served up accurately, clearly, and seasoned with practicality. Amen? That's why Paul, in the last letter that he wrote before he was martyred, made this a priority. He told Timothy that he needs to rightly divide the Word of God rightly divide. Uh, that's one word in Greek. Uh, the, the NIV translates it correctly handling the Word of God, but that phrase rightly dividing, correctly handling, it's the Greek word orthotomeo. Orthotomeo. It, it comes from two Greek words, orthos meaning straight and temno meaning cut. So it means to cut straight. So Orthotomeo, it's the only time it's used in the whole New Testament. It means to cut straight or to guide along a straight path. So what Paul was telling Timothy to do is when you come to the Word of God, cut a straight path from what it says to what it means. Don't be turned aside by allegory and mysticism and conjecture and funny stories. Just make sure that what you say it means can be directly tied to the words on the page, what it says, now I said it's only, this word's only used once in the New Testament. Interestingly, it's used twice in the Greek translation of the Old Testament in Proverbs. Only two times it's used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 is a passage we're all familiar with, I'm sure. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He shall direct your paths. Uh, to direct... Again, here in the, in the Greek translation is orthotomeo, to make straight. In fact, some English translations will say he will make your paths straight. And then again in Proverbs 11, verse 5, the righteousness of the blameless will direct, will make straight his way. Uh, what does this mean? The idea is that following God's direction in your life will cut a path in a straight direction 
where God wants you to go. It will, it will cut a clean, clear, stable path across a countryside that might be forested or otherwise difficult to pass through with pitfalls and whatnot, but it'll cut in a straight direction so that the traveler can get directly to his destination without being hindered. That's what God's Word does in our life. It cuts that straight path. We go back to 2 Timothy 2.15. The idea here is that we are to handle God's Word correctly when studying it, like cutting a straight path, guiding the Word of truth along a straight path without being turned aside by speculation, allegorizing the meaning, fanciful meanings that we come up with in our mind. This word really means this. This, this is what's really being said here, that kind of a thing. Let the Word of God speak plainly in its literal, grammatical, historical sense. By the way, the word orthotomeo is where we get the English word orthodontia or orthodontics, right? It's a surgical word. Uh, in other words, when you're orthodontist, what, what he's doing is he's making your teeth straight, right? You definitely would not want to go to an orthodontist who could not cut straight, so to speak, right? And yet so many people will flock to churches where the pastor is not cutting straight. They're not teaching the Word of God uh, accurately uh, and uh, rightly dividing the Word of God. Uh, so this brings us to your Bible study method. As I said, the value of the Word of God is only as good as your ability to handle it correctly. And the single greatest reason that Christians don't get more out of their Bible study is that they have no method. It's arbitrary. The theologians call this a hermeneutic, right? How do you study the Bible? Your Bible study method. If you have a faulty method, boy, it's going gonna, it's gonna to really lead you astray. Not all Bible study methods are created equal. Uh, you know, if you, if you learned to study the Bible under, say, Benny Hinn, well, you're going to be led astray, uh, you know, or Bob Tilton or any of these other, you know, televangelists that are heretics. But if you learn to study the Bible in a literal grammatical historical way, you're going to come up with an accurate interpretation. So uh, among conservatives who believe the Bible is the word of God in Christianity, there are two different approaches uh, to, to Bible study method. Only one of them is accurate. But I want to, to demonstrate the importance of your Bible study method. I want to tell you where having a wrong hermeneutic leads. So if you look at my chart here, which is one of the charts in our chart book. By the way, we have, uh, for those of you that are guests here, we have resources out on the uh, table in the lobby that are different books that I've written through the years. They're there for your uh, benefit. Feel free to, to, to help yourself. But in this chart, I'm trying to talk about the literal grammatical historical interpretation as opposed to the allegorical interpretation where you read the passage and then you come up with some fanciful interpretation up here that could not possibly have generated from the words on the page themselves so where does that lead well first of all in your theological system it's the difference between dispensationalism versus covenant theology i was dialoguing with someone this week a fellow pastor about covenant theology so uh it leads to things like Israel and the church being distinct programs. Dispensationalism, by the way, is a biblical term. comes straight out of Ephesians 3. Oikonomos is the Greek word. As a theological system, it has come to mean those who believe the Bible should be interpreted literally, grammatically, and historically. Therefore, when you do that, you arrive at the conclusion that God has a future for national Israel. That he's not done with them. The church has not replaced Israel the way an allegorical interpretation would leave you, lead you to believe. And so that's why a lot of people 
have no use for Israel in their theology. And they practice what's called replacement theology. Why? Because they have a bad Bible study method, an incorrect Bible study method. Uh, in terms of God's purpose in human history, we believe the Bible from Genesis to Revelation tells a story about bringing him ultimate glory. For uh, those who practice an allegorical interpretation, it's all about redeeming mankind. You know, every story is all about individual personal salvation. Well, it's certainly true that the Bible tells the story about individual redemption, but that's not all that God is doing. He's doing a lot more. It's a creation plan of history, or plan for creation history, I should say. When it comes to end times, a literal grammatical interpretation will lead you to a literal earthly kingdom, whereas if you allegorize scripture, you don't believe in a literal earthly kingdom. And so passages like Ezekiel 40 to 48 and Isaiah 65 and 66 and so forth are all just brushed aside as one giant metaphor. But most importantly, when it comes to the doctrine of salvation, if you practice a literal grammatical historical interpretation, you're going to understand salvation as free grace as opposed to Calvinistic. So see, these, there's some serious implications for not cutting straight, for not handling the Word of God correctly. We believe salvation is by grace. It's free. It's a free gift. Jesus paid it all. Nothing you can do to earn it. You don't have to walk an aisle, sign a car, do a dance, nothing else. It's simply personal faith alone in Christ alone. You can't earn it. Calvinism teaches you can't believe in the gospel, even if you wanted to. God has to force you to believe. And then even once he forces you to believe, if you don't do good works all the way till the time you die, then you never really were forced to believe to begin with. I mean, that's essentially what they're saying. Nobody has the choice. God has to give you the gift of faith, which is category confusion. You don't get a gift to get a gift. You get a gift because you received the gift. Faith is the instrumental means of receiving salvation, uh, not, the, uh, the, not the result of salvation. So anyway, it has serious implications. So Nehemiah was not spiritualizing the text. He was giving the plain meaning of the text. Meaning resides within the pages of Scripture on the words, in the words themselves, not in the mind of uh, the reader. By the way, 2 Timothy 2.15, which we looked at a second ago, notice it also says, be diligent. It's not easy to cut straight. It, it's, it's much easier to just to carelessly, as Chuck Swindoll said, flippantly teach the Word of God. But we, we want to realize it, it takes effort. So you, you don't want to ignore the authorial intent. What did the Holy Spirit inspire the writer of Scripture to write? You don't want to look for multiple meanings. Uh, you want to cut straight, not just wing it. So I've developed five steps here in the Bible study process, uh, and I've talked about these a lot through the, through the years. If you were in our study that we did a couple of years ago on how to read and understand the Bible, this may ring uh, a bell, but I know we've got a lot of new folks here. But it starts with the Bible. I mean, there's a profound thought, right? If you're going to study the Bible, let's start with the Bible. There are a lot of supplemental books out there and shrink wrap things that you can buy on how to study the Bible. And sadly, many of those, it's hard to even find the Bible in them. Start with the Bible and study it in its literal grammatical context as we've talked about. Then you compare Scripture with Scripture, you know, saying what else the Bible says about that subject. The Bible can never contradict itself. So you always interpret the obscure in light of the clear. There are passages that are difficult at first glance, but as you study the Bible as a whole, they will resolve themselves in perfect continuity. And then the third step is you simply formulate a conclusion. Having studied the Bible in context, what does the Bible say about, and you fill in the blank. So if you're studying angels, 
and you've studied all that the Bible has to say about angels, you can formulate a doctrinal statement. If you're studying salvation, what does the Bible say? Well, 160 times it says you're saved by faith, right? Uh, that kind of thing. So this is the development phase where you're developing your worldview or your grid or what does the Bible say. But notice there are five steps in the Bible study process, and we'll get to those here in just a second. But the question here for number two is, are you learning anything from the Bible? As you study the Word of God, as you listen to it, are you learning from it? But the third and final thing we see from the example of Nehemiah is live by it. Live by it. The whole point is to change your life. The Bible is the only standard for our beliefs, attitudes, and practices. So what happened when they read from it and, and listened to it? Uh, it says, all the people wept. Conviction set in. They mourned and wept because they realized how far they had drifted from God's standard. Uh, one of the reasons I love this chapter is verse 10, one of the most famous verses from all of Nehemiah. Go your way, Nehemiah says to them when they're weeping, go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared, for this day is holy to our God. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. See, the law specified that the Feast of Trumpets was to be a joyous occasion. And so Nehemiah urges them to rejoice in the Lord. There's so much that they could rejoice in in that moment, that he had brought them back. They had not forsaken his people. He had stuck to his covenant. A better day was coming. He had protected them. I mean, the whole exile was in response to their own disobedience to begin with, and yet God still remained faithful. Verses 11 and 12, all the people then went their way to eat and drink because they understood the words that were declared to them. See, when you understand Scripture accurately, it's going to make a difference then in how you act. So they stopped weeping and they started doing what the Word of God said. Uh, verse 13, on the second day, this is really fascinating to me, on the second day, remember this was a week-long festival, the, fathers, the, the heads of the fathers' houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites, they all come to Ezra and they start knocking. In essence, they say, tell us more. So they study all day in this assembly. They go back. They go to sleep. They get up early the next day to make a beeline for Ezra. They say, we want to know more. They were hungry. They knew they needed it to know how to live and to live successfully. This is the normal outcome and response to studying the Word of God. And, and so they found written in the law, which the Lord had commanded them, commanded Moses that the children of Israel should dwell in booths. We talked about that. That was the whole point of this festival and so they wanted to begin uh, to do this so the point is the bible should be undergirding our thinking in every area of life it should be central we should run everything we think and do and act through the lens of scripture that's what a biblical worldview is all about it's seeing the world through the lens of the bible not seeing the world through man's theories secular humanistic you know history uh, history, as we have been taught, has largely been proven false. Just about everything we thought we knew from that, you know, Luciferian-controlled textbook industry that was taken over in the early 1900s is wrong. <laughs> not true. We need to, you know, the world's not millions of years old. We didn't all evolve from a wet rock, right? There are so many lies out there, and it comes to how you view Scripture. 
So that brings me back to the steps four and five. We talked about how this is the development phase, but uh, step four then is having developed your grid, your truth statements, your doctrinal statement, then you use that, put it to use. Evaluate the world's truth claims. So when the world says one thing, you say, well, does that, is that what God's word says? If it isn't, you reject it. So you use this you know, grid that you've developed in the first three steps to validate or invalidate truth claims from any and every source, from nightly news, from websites, from books, by the way, even from pulpits, right? I'm not infallible. I know that comes as a great shock. Uh, so and, and so you, everything I say and teach and any preacher teaches, you ought to take it to the Word of God and run it through the grid of Scripture. But that's still not it. Still, there's a fifth step, and that is to apply what you've learned to your life. Because the goal of Bible study is not to get smarter or to win trivial pursuit games or something. It's to change your life. And that's what Nehemiah wanted. He wanted to see the lives of God's people change. He wanted to see them return to him. So this is the implementation phase. We've got the development phase. And that's where a lot of people stop. They stop at step three. And indeed, as I told the early service, the world is filled with intellectually, biblically brilliant people who are morally bankrupt. Did you know that? You can know the Word of God, but if you don't live it out, what's the point? And, and, and anybody can study the Word of God. I mean, I've got commentaries and Greek and Hebrew tools on my shelf written by unbelievers that are experts in Hebrew or Aramaic or grammar or syntax or culture or manners and customs of that day. And they're educational books, helpful books. But these people don't know the Lord. And their lives are a wreck. So you can be biblically brilliant and morally bankrupt. You haven't finished the process of studying the Bible until you've reached step five, which is to change your life. What are you doing with this information? And that's always been God's purpose. Notice when the children of Israel stood on the banks of the Jordan, Joshua said, be strong and courageous that you may observe to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written. Notice, for then you will make your way prosperous, that then you will find good success. We're not blessed by reading the Word of God. We're blessed by reading and applying the Word of God. Reading, understanding, and applying the Word of God. Going back to 2 Timothy, that last letter Paul wrote, we already talked about chapter 2 where he tells Timothy to cut straight, to rightly handle the Word. But chapter 3, he says something else very important. He says, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for four things. That word Scripture is graphe in Greek. It's where we get the English word graffiti. It means written word. So the written Word of God, right? And most of it had been written by the time Paul wrote 2 Timothy is profitable. It's useful. How? Four ways. Doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. So that the man, and the idea here is the believer, the man or woman of God, can be complete, mature, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want to be mature in your Christian walk? You want to grow closer to the Lord? You want to be morally mature? 
Got to get in the Word of God. Those four things, it's really interesting when you break it down. It's profitable for doctrine. That tells us what to believe. It's profitable for reproof. That tells us what not to believe. It's profitable for instruction in righteousness. That tells us how to behave. And it's profitable for correction. That tells us how not to behave. And so when you think about it, if you look at those four things along the bottom of the screen there, what more do you need in life, right? We need to know what to believe and what not to believe, what's right, what's wrong, what's true and what's a lie. We need to know that. And then we need to know how to act and how not to act. What should we do? What should we avoid? If we can nail those four things down, we're going to have a pretty successful life. How do we know those things? Through the Word of God. All Scripture is profitable in that way. Last verse, James chapter 1. James, the Lord's brother, one of the earliest New Testament books. Notice he says, Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. And then he uses an analogy. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like. That's a comparison using like or as. It's a figure of speech called a simile. So he's making a, a, a metaphor here, essentially. And what he says is, if, you, if you're just you know, hearing the word but not doing it, it's kind of like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. In, in Greek, natural there is face of his birth. So he's saying you're like, it's like you observe the face of your birth in the mirror. And what birth is he talking about? Just a few verses earlier in chapter 1, he says, we've all, to, his listener, to his readers, we've all been born from above. He's talking about the second birth, the spiritual birth, being born again. So you're born again. You're a new person in Christ. You're saved. And it's like if you're a, doer, a hearer of the word and not a doer, it's like you look in the mirror. You see this new man that you're supposed to be in Christ. But then you go away and immediately forget what kind of man you are. See, you're not living like the person you see in the mirror. You're not living like the new man in Christ. But he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, the word of God, and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. So did you realize blessing comes from doing the word not simply reading or hearing the word. Again, you can be biblically smart, but morally bankrupt. So, there you have it. Three ways to make God's word central in your life. Listen to it, learn from it, and then live by it. And I tell you what, that's going to be harder and harder to do in these great last days of deception. And that's why we need each other. We need the church. We need to hold each other accountable. And we need to... Shout from the rooftops the word of God, most notably the gospel. See, the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes it. And so if you're listening to this message today or you're watching online and you've not yet trusted in Jesus Christ who died and rose again for your sins as the only hope of eternal life, you need to do that today. Uh, the word of God is clear. We're all sinners who need a Savior. And if you die in your sin, Jesus said, uh, without believing in him, you will, you'll face a Christless eternity in a literal place of torment called hell. So today, put your faith in Jesus. It's a one-time step. It's not something you have to do over and over again. It's when faith meets the gospel, the result is eternal life every time. For those of you that already know the Lord, there's the message right there. I, I mean, the, the takeaway is the title, Live by the Book. Live by the Book. We know it. Let's put it into practice. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, message from Nehemiah today. And Lord, uh, we just pray that you'd raise up Christians today to have the same boldness and courage and the same response, instinctive response to the Word of God 
that we would be broken over our failure to really follow your word and, and set an example. And so, Lord, we, we confess that, and we pray that you'd build up our faith, strengthen us, give us boldness in these uh, difficult times, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.